everybody. Welcome back to another episode of On The Mix. I'm your host, Lindsay. And today, I'm going to be talking to you about a really, really sad, but quite interesting story. He was known as the King of Soul. One of his most famous, most popular songs, A Change Is Gonna Come, became an anthem for the civil rights movement in the 60s and beyond. Unfortunately, Sam Cooke was shot and killed in December of 1964. Now his death is still shrouded in mystery to this day. It was deemed in court that it was a justifiable homicide, but we're going to be looking at the facts of the case and we're going to be looking at could there have been a possible conspiracy to kill him? Because as you'll see in this episode, I'm going to be diving deep into who Sam Cooke was, his background, his upbringing, how he became enmeshed in the civil rights movement at a time when the FBI was fearing the rising up of Black Americans. And Sam Cooke was a very powerful, very, very talented Black man. And that's a very fearful thing for white America back in the 60s with Jim Crow laws and the civil rights movement. So before we dive deep into his death and the mystery and the possible conspiracies that shroud his death, I want to jump into his background. Who was Sam Cooke? Who was he? Who did he stand for? What kind of mission statements did he have in this life? And who did he associate with? Sam was so revolutionary in the way that he looked at the world and he saw a massive problem that he was wondering how he himself could alleviate, how he himself could fix. Because Sam was one of the few black artists in America at the time in the 50s and 60s to make it to be an entertainer in America, in white America. And I keep emphasizing that because that's unfortunately the time that we're talking about in the 50s and 60s, right? Black musicians could be black musicians so long as they entertained the white families that were listening in on the radio, right? If they ever progressed further and spoke about politics in their music, they'd be shut down. They wouldn't be heard. So Sam was a very strong, empowered, unafraid black man who really stood for his beliefs and his morals. And he stood for equality. One of probably the most famous songs of the 60s that also coincided with the civil rights movement came from Bob Dylan. His song, Blowin' in the Wind, was released in 1963. While that song was amazing and it did what it did, right? Sam was moved by this song for a number of reasons. Predominantly, he was kind of almost embarrassed or kind of upset that a song that's so poignant about racism in America would come from a Jewish white guy such as Bob Dylan. And he was very upset that no other black artist had like rose to the occasion to produce a song in similar vein. So that's where a change is going to come came from. And what was crazy was there was two things. One, there was a lyric in the song that he spoke about segregation that was deleted for radio play by RCA. He was with the label RCA at the time. And RCA removed that lyric entirely before it got released officially. And it released officially sometime after his death, which is mad. Otis Redding is another famous black musician of the time. He actually covered that song in 1965. And he said that he wanted to, quote, fill the silent void created by Sam Cooke's death. So with all of that, that lays the foundation for this episode. Let's dive more into who Sam Cooke was. Sam was born Samuel Cooke in Clarksdale, Mississippi in 1931. He was the fifth of eight children of his father, Reverend Charles Cooke, who was a minister of the Church of Christ, and his mom, Annie May. Sam's family would eventually move from Mississippi to Chicago two years later in 1933. It was here that he attended Doolittle Elementary and Wendell Phillips Academy High School. 
This was actually the same school that a similar black musician, Nat King Cole, had attended a few years earlier. So he was in good company there. Sam was always gifted as a singer, and he began his singing career with his siblings in a group called the Singing Children when he was about six. And then he first became known as a lead singer with a group called the Highway QCs when he was a teenager, having joined the group at age 14. But it was in 1950 that Sam started becoming more of a well-known singer when he replaced H.R. Harris, who was the lead singer of this gospel group called the Soul Stirrers. Now, apparently, H.R. Harris was this incredible tenor voice in this gospel group. And the notion that anyone could replace H.R. Harris was kind of crazy at the time. So for Sam to step in, He at first tried really hard to like almost mimic what H.R. Harris would do so that people wouldn't get upset that, oh, this wasn't H.R. Harris, that this was a new person. Sam then changed up his modality and he instead sang as himself. He wasn't trying to act like anyone. He just came then through to sing like himself. And that's where a lot of magic happened there. Their first recording under Sam's leadership was the song Jesus Gave Me Water in 1951. And then, of course, you know, they became more increasingly popular. But initially, it was just a lot of uh, secular gospel music that Sam was doing. And this was very of the time as well. His father was a reverend in a church. And Sam was a part of this youth culture that was growing up in a changing America where You know, blues music was kind of up and coming. You know, you had people like Chuck Berry and Little Richard. Elvis would come through in some time and change the scene. So for a long time here, it was mostly just very secular religious gospel music that they had their fan base for. And Sam was often credited for bringing gospel music to the attention of a younger crowd of listeners, mostly He gathered a large fan base of young girls who would actually rush the stage when the Soul Stirrers started to play, only mainly to get a glimpse of Sam Cooke, because Sam Cooke was a a very attractive, handsome young guy. And all the girls would say that he was so cute and they just wanted a glimpse of Sam Cooke. So, I mean, that makes sense. Like, you know, a lot of these groups as well from back in the day, they were a lot older and you didn't have like a young, fresh good-looking face in the middle of all these like gospel groups. So to have like a handsome and young and very talented Sam Cooke in the middle of this gospel group, it helped their reputation that they had Sam in their group because now it gave them a lot more street cred, if you will, aside from just like gospel fans. But there was a switch that happened between this time period and 1957 where Sam wanted to do more. He wanted to branch out and not just stay with gospel. He wanted to do more pop stuff. He wanted to do more things like that. And he was afraid at first to make that switch because people all around him were saying, are you going to keep playing gospel or are you going to keep playing the devil's music? And people labeled the devil's music as the pop stuff that was on the radio like the bubblegum pop stuff or the blues stuff or the rock stuff. It was either you played God's music or you played the devil's music. And Sam was very afraid to make that gap initially, to jump from gospel into doing his pop stuff. So his first record he came out with, he disguised his name. He came out with a song and I believe he either had the name Dale Cook or something like that. It was a name that wasn't his own name. But of course, people that were familiar with Sam Cooke's voice, which is very unique, could hear, hey, is that actually Sam Cooke on this record? And so, you know, Sam distanced himself from the gospel music, and he eventually embraced releasing music that he enjoyed and that he wanted to play, and he thought there was nothing wrong with it, and he shouldn't be ashamed of it. So, By this point, in 1957, he officially embraced being Sam Cooke, the pop musician, and he signed with Keen Records. His first hit was a song called You Send Me. This is one of his major songs, and this was released as the B-side of his song called Summertime, and it spent six weeks at number one on the Billboard R&B chart. The song also had mainstream success, 
spending three weeks at number one on the Billboard pop chart as well. So this did very well for him. It proved to him that he could play the music he wanted to play and people actually wanted to listen. It elevated his status so much that he went from earning $200 a week making music to over $5,000 a week, which is crazy. And you consider what that would be like now due to inflation, and that's a lot of money regardless. So that's incredible. So between this time period, he would become ever increasingly popular, and he grew a large fan base, and people loved him. He eventually signed with the major record label RCA in January of 1960, having been offered a guaranteed $100,000 by the label's producers. So signing with RCA was huge for him, and as well as all of his other contemporary counterparts that you know, tried to make it big in the music industry as black musicians, because like I mentioned already, it was one thing to be a musician, but to be a black musician and to be very famous and to have this pedestal now where a lot of audiences of varying races are seeing you, that's quite a lot to kind of like hold on your shoulders. It's it's a lot of pressure that he was put under, but Sam took it with grace and He tried his best to kind of be vocal as much as he could about civil rights activism. We'll see in just a few minutes how he actually really was vying for his other Black artists to rise to the occasion as well. But one of his first RCA singles was a song called Chain Gang. And this was also another breakthrough for him because the Chain Gang, this talked about how in history there were slave prisons where black people would be enslaved and they would do work in the prisons. And this was called the Chain Gang. So this was actually quite big for him to take this leap from having a typical pop song called You Send Me to then talking about real political things at this time. So that's crazy that he made that that jump there. But um, it actually reached number two on the Billboard pop charts, which is nice. It was followed by more hits, including Sad Mood, Cupid, Bring It On Home To Me, Another Saturday Night, and Twisting The Night Away. Over time, he's acquiring a large fan base. He actually performed at the Copacabana, which is a huge nightclub. Not only is it a massively popular song by Barry Manilow, but it's it's genuinely was the most popular nightclub at the time, the Copacabana. So if you played at the Copa, you were actually like making it very, very, very big. So, you know, I would I would reckon to say that Sam was probably one of the most poignant black musicians to rise up to that occasion in popularity and be adored by not only black audiences, but white audiences too. Unfortunately, though, here's the thing. He played to a segregated audience a lot of the time. And even though he was so massively popular, when he would go and he would tour with his bandmates, he couldn't just go to any motel that he wanted. He had to go to a hotel that would accept him. So he couldn't go to any hotel because a lot of them were segregated. And he was upset about that. You know, he was very upset that he couldn't just do what he wanted to do and live the life he wanted. So there became a point where Sam refused to play to a segregated audience where like the white people would be up in the balconies and, you know, his black fans would be down on the floor. And this upset RCA, this upset a lot of his other music industry co-workers that were trying to work with him and trying to get him as big of a career as possible. But Sam was very adamant he would not do that. So there became a point in time where he didn't want to do that. So Sam was actually one of the first Black performers and composers to attend to the business side of his musical career. So RCA Victor, for the longest time, they held his publishing rights. So any song that he published, they held all the rights to his work. But he was like, you know, I want to branch out and do something different. I want to create my own record label. And I want to create a publishing company wherein I hold all of the rights to my own music. So this record label was called SAR Records. And the publishing company was called CAGS. So he created SAR Records with J.W. Alexander and his manager, Roy Crane. So essentially, this record label was specifically designed for Sam to bring a place for his up-and-coming fellow Black musicians to have a place where they could create music freely, 
And Sam could be very much so in the booth with all these people and help them as best he could. He said in one interview that one of the best things that could happen is that all of his artists that were on his label could have hits because that's just what he wanted. He wanted all of these fellow black artists to have success like he did. So this is what Star Records was mostly about. This label actually included this band called the Valentinos, which was a band that featured the young Bobby Womack. Bobby Womack, if you're unfamiliar, he's also a very popular R&B type of pop singer, if you will. Um, He would have become that in the future. That's quite interesting. So it's nice that he started this with good intentions. Unfortunately, that comes with a price because people see this as this very powerful black man is like creating a space, a safe space for his other fellow black artists to rise to the occasion and to have popular hits too and to take over, right? Paranoid people at this time were seeing this as like a threat. I'll just say that. They were seeing it as a threat to what these other record labels were doing. Like RCA Victor was like not a massive fan that this was happening. But in 1963, Sam kept pursuing on and he was introduced to a man who I have all the despise for. His name is Alan Klein. I've talked about Alan Klein briefly in my Beatles podcasts because Alan Klein was tied to the Beatles. He like bankrupted the Beatles. He was one of the reasons that the Beatles broke up. Like genuinely, he's a bad guy. Uh, but Sam was signed to a five-year contract uh, with Alan Klein for Alan to manage CAGS and SAR Records. Sam was like, cool, you know, Alan Klein can help finance and help manage this for me because that's what Alan Klein's job was, basically. So Alan negotiated this contract with RCA in which a holding company, which was named Tracy Limited, would produce and own Sam's recordings. This is so unfortunate that this happened because sometime after Sam signed this contract with Alan in 1963... Some time went on and Sam eventually got sick. He got so sick that he had to stay home. And as he was kind of loafing around his house, he had the time to properly sift through all of his documents. And as he was looking through the paperwork, he noticed that Alan Klein actually put himself as the owner of Tracy Limited, which meant that Sam was just an employee of Alan Klein. And that sent... Sam Cooke into a massive spiral. He was pissed off, as you rightfully would be, that your own company was now in the hands of someone else. So before Sam's passing, he was going to get on a plane and fly to New York to visit Alan Klein and fire him because that was so crazy. But um, that's just one of the tragic things that happened to him. Another tragic thing that happened uh, to Sam Cooke in his life, he was married to his wife named Barbara, and they had three children. And uh, one of his children, around this time as well in 1963, around this time period, died accidentally and tragically when the baby was walking around the house outside and they fell into the swimming pool and passed away. Of course, that ate Sam up like no other. And unfortunately, Sam just immediately didn't want to think about the pain. And so he pushed himself further into his career and wanting to just go on tour, make music and do all of this business stuff and just forget about, you know, the real life of what he had lost. So Sam was fighting a lot of battles at this time. He was fighting this battle with his record company. He was fighting the battle with Alan Klein. He was fighting the battle with losing and dealing with the grief of his child. His marriage was then crumbling as well. And he was dealing with what it means for him to be a black person in America at this time. He was actually enmeshed strongly with people like Malcolm X, who was a huge, equally as huge as Martin Luther King Jr. He was a huge proponent of speaking about Jim Crow laws and the civil rights movement at this time. He was a huge figure at the center fold of all of this. And he was also friends with boxer Muhammad Ali. You wouldn't think that that would be a massive thing, but Muhammad Ali was one of the top heavyweight champions of this time. Once those three became friends, Muhammad Ali actually then started taking more of a political stance alongside Sam Cooke and Malcolm X, because the three of them were really good, close friends. Um, So yet again, you know, 
it would almost be an immediate death sentence, if you will, to consider like on the same coin. Imagine if Sam Cooke had befriended Martin Luther King Jr. and hung out with him all the time. Like that would be equally as threatening to the FBI and to police and to other white nationalists as it was that he was hanging out with Malcolm X because they're kind of very much so equal in a lot of respects. Unfortunately, Malcolm X would also be murdered around this time period, which is crazy. So Sam was not afraid at all. He was unafraid of the repercussions of him being vocal about being a Black artist and being a Black person in America. To the point where when he started creating his own record company, it was told that the mob was starting to approach him wanting a cut of any of the money that he would make through his record company. And apparently, I didn't know this genuinely, but apparently the mob has a massive foothold in the music business because it's so lucrative. I genuinely was unaware of this, but that's what it was. I don't know if that still is, but that was at the time. So the mob would like frequently go to Sam Cooke and be like, hey, let's make a deal. And Sam would say, no, I'm not afraid of you guys. Like, I don't want to make any plans with you. Get out of here. Get lost. And people around Sam were like, Sam, you can't just say that to the mob. Like, they're the mob, you know, but Sam, he didn't care. Sam did not care about anybody saying nothing to him. He was so vocal and so proud of who he was. He wasn't going to let anyone trample over him, which kudos to him. I think that's outstanding. But unfortunately, it brings us to the set of circumstances that happen his death and the possibility that this could have possibly been a conspiracy instead of quote unquote justifiable homicide. Let's get into now the main meat and potatoes of the story. Let's get into the circumstances surrounding Sam Cooke's death. This is fascinating. While this is a closed case, like the police have closed this, this is a closed case. There is so much that has yet to be looked into properly. So I did my best to present this in a way that hopefully you guys can understand the sequence of events. So let's first break down the main players and that surround Sam Cooke's death so that you understand. There's Sam Cooke himself. There are three women surrounding this death. There's a woman named Bertha Franklin and she was a motel manager. There was Evelyn Carr, who was the owner of this motel, where Sam ended up dying. And then there's this woman named Lisa Boyer, and she was the woman that Sam was with on the night of his death. This took place between December 10th through the 11th of 1964, and he died on the 11th. The two places that are very important to the story are Martoni's Restaurant and the Hacienda Motel in Los Angeles. So with those facts, let's get into where the night started. So this started at around 9 p.m. on December the 10th, 1964. Sam showed up to the restaurant in his red Ferrari, his new Ferrari, looking really good in his nice suit. He showed up to the restaurant. He was having dinner with Al Schmidt, one of his friends, and his wife, Joan. Sam was well recognized the entire night, of course, because he's Sam Cooke, right? And also because he dressed up in a very nice manner with his suit. All throughout the entire evening, people would interrupt him during dinner to say hello and all of that, which is fine. And like I mentioned, Sam had recently played at the Copacabana and a a live album from this concert had been released and it was doing extremely well in the music charts to the point where Sam was well on his way to working into the big leagues of the music industry. He was literally going to be even more massive in popularity than he already was, which was already big. So everyone was recognizing Sam Cooke is here at this restaurant. Let's go say hello to him. Sam was having a ball. He was having a great time. He was enjoying the success that he had just had. And Sam was drinking. He had about three or four martinis that night. And so... He went with his friend Al to the restaurant bar where he bought everyone drinks. He was like, let me show out for everyone. Let me buy a round of drinks. It's well known at this time that Sam was happily showing off this massive wad of cash. He was saying, hey, look how much money I just made at all of these live shows that I had just done. And apparently... According to Al Schmidt's wife, Joan, who was there that night and saw this, she believed that Sam 
said that he had about $5,000 in cash on him, which that's, I mean, that's a lot of money. Thousands of dollars he had on him just like that, and he was showing it around, which isn't the smart thing to do. He wasn't trying to flaunt his money. He was just being happy about the fact that he was making a lot of money and he could show out for people. So Sam orders a round of drinks for his music industry friends and all his other friends that were there. And he told his friend Al that, you know what, I'm going to hang at the bar for a minute, go and have dinner with Joan. I'll be there in a minute. Well, it was here that Sam turns his shoulder and he catches the eye of 22-year-old Lisa Boyer, who was sitting at a nearby booth with three other guys. He actually knew one of these guys that were hanging with Lisa because this guy was a guitar player that Sam was acquainted with. So Sam walks right up to this booth and this is where he gets introduced to Lisa. It wasn't too long before Sam and Lisa were enjoying each other's company. They were cuddling up to each other. It was a good time for Sam. He was enjoying himself. He was a bit tipsy. He was he was good. Around 1 a.m., Sam and Lisa left Martoni's and they drove in Sam's new Ferrari to a nightclub called PJ's where they were supposed to be meeting Al and his wife. But when they arrived to the club, apparently Al and his wife were gone. So Sam was like, well, we're already here. Let's just kind of have a good time for a bit. Al would later tell People Magazine that, quote, Sam never showed up, so I went home. I was told later he got there about 15 minutes later, just before closing time, and they wouldn't let him in. He was with that girl. So while he was at this club for a brief period of time, he eventually got into a fight, a heated argument, with this guy who was apparently hitting on Lisa at the club. It's now the point where Sam and Lisa get into Sam's Ferrari and they head off for a drive. Now, this is then the story that Lisa tells. This is her story. They got into Sam's Ferrari after the club and they drove off. She asked Sam to take her home, but she said that he was drunk and he drove her against her will somewhere to take advantage of her to have sex with her. She knew in her mind that he was going to rape her. This is what she told the police later, but she felt like she couldn't escape. So, According to her, Sam was drunk and he was driving on the highways. He was driving really fast and erratically, trying to scare her. He was apparently making all these weird compliments to her and trying to be really flirty with her. And she was like not having it. Apparently along this way, they passed all these hotels and they eventually ended up at the Hacienda Hotel at around 2.35 in the morning. So they settled on this Hacienda Hotel. Lisa said that Sam acted as if he was familiar with the place, as if he was a repeat customer. According to reports, and according to her, Sam asked for a room under his own name, like, hey, room for Sam Cook, please. Now, like I said, Bertha Franklin, she's one of the players in the story, and she's the hotel manager. So Bertha, like, looked over Sam's shoulder, and she noticed that Lisa was in Sam's car. So she says to Sam, you have to sign in as Mr. and Mrs., not your own name. So that's what he did. And then he drove his Ferrari back around the hotel to their room. And it was here that, according to Lisa, that Sam attempted to molest her and strip her naked and forced her onto the bed. She somehow, according to her, asked Sam if she could use the bathroom at some point during this altercation. And he said, sure, go for it. And it was here that she tried to escape, but the windows were painted shut, so she had nowhere to go. When she went back in the room, she found Sam lying in bed naked. What happens between that point and this point is unknown, except both of these parties know. And of course, one of them is dead. So we only know from what she says. So she says that at some point, Sam goes into the bathroom for his own use. And it was at this time that she fled. She took her clothes along with most of his own clothes and she just ran. She just took whatever she could. She was only in her nightgown and she just ran out of the hotel. Lisa ran to the manager's office and knocked on Bertha's door, but she got no response from Bertha. Maybe Bertha was asleep. Who knows? But she got no response anyway. So fearing that Sam would, you know, chase after her, she fled the motel and she ended up putting her clothes back on and she would run to a phone booth near the motel and this is where she called the police. So when she called the police, she said that she was kidnapped 
And that's all that she said. She said, I'm kidnapped. I don't know where I am. Come and get me. And that's essentially the phone call that she made to the police. Now let's go around. That was her story, by the way. Now let's go back around to Sam and what happened for Sam's point of view. So Sam leaves the bathroom and he noticed Lisa was gone, along with most of his clothes. Now remember, Sam's massive wad of cash, the $5,000 he had in his coat pocket, she took most of his clothes. So the money he had, that was gone. The wallet with his credit cards, also gone. So, so he threw on whatever he could and he threw on his sports jacket and a single shoe and he ran into the motel and he knocked on Bertha's office door. And this is where he yelled, quote, is the girl in there? So on the other side of this office door is Bertha. She's on the phone to Evelyn Carr and Evelyn Carr is the motel's owner. So she's on the phone with Evelyn. So Evelyn can apparently hear all of this going down. And what ends up happening is he asks, is the girl in there? And this is where Bertha says no one was in her office at all. But apparently, according to Bertha, this upset Sam so much that he forced his way into her office, literally barging in there with his shoulder so hard that apparently the door frame ripped loose and the latch gave. So, and according to Bertha, allegedly Sam grabbed her and said, where's the girl? And he accused Bertha of hiding Lisa somewhere. And this is where, according to Bertha, the two of them get into a physical altercation. This is where some claim that Sam like grabbed her arms and like twisted her arms or that uh, they got into this physical tumble where Sam struck her in the face with his fists. Um, but according to Bertha herself, where she said this to the police, she said, quote, he fell on top of me. I tried to bite him through that jacket, biting, scratching and everything. Finally, I got up when I kicked him. I run and grabbed the pistol off the TV and I shot at close range three times, end quote. So she shot him. They had a tumble. They had a bit of a fight on the ground. She gets up. She grabs her 22 pistol and she shoots him three times. The first two shots miss. The third shot was the one that hits Sam directly. It goes through his chest I believe, according to the coroner's report, from my recollection, it goes through both of his lungs and his heart. And he says, lady, you shot me. And Sam says this perplexed. He doesn't say this in an angry tone. He says this in a shocked, like, lady, you shot me kind of tone. And these were apparently Sam's last words, because according to Bertha, Sam managed to somehow get up and charge her. But instead of using her gun to shoot him further, she grabbed a broomstick and she hit Sam over the head, apparently. And this is where, according to her, Sam fell on the floor and died, succumbing to the hit over the head with the broomstick and the shot through his chest. So Sam ends up dying in this altercation. That's how he dies. Evelyn, the hotel owner, overhears the whole entire thing, apparently. And this is where she also calls the police. So only two people call the police for this incident. Lisa, who was at this phone booth and she ran away. And Evelyn Carr, the owner of this motel, who isn't there to witness anything, but she hears the gunshots. So police take their sweet time and they arrive to the scene at about 6 a.m. All that they knew was that there was a shooting and a kidnapping at this motel. And they weren't immediately too concerned because the LAPD had known this hotel to be a known black motel where a lot of shootings happen all the time in Los Angeles. They weren't concerned. This was probably another black guy that just died due to gun violence, right? They weren't concerned. They were surprised, however, to eventually find out that that was actually Sam Cooke that was dead on the ground in the office. So they didn't know that initially that that was Sam Cooke, but they learned it later. So that's how Sam Cooke ends up dying. He ends up dying due to Bertha Franklin shooting him once in the chest at close range, according to her. So, of course, the news of Sam Cooke's death massively strikes a chord with America and his wife, Barbara. Um, she was so distraught and his children, of course. So there was a coroner's inquest and there was a proceeding that was done five days later, but it was a hasty proceeding. It wasn't like anything where it was a drawn out, 
court case or anything. Like Sam's lawyer could only ask one question. They only got the testimony from Lisa and from Bertha. And basically, what I told you is what they ended up saying. So that was the story that they gave. Now, Bertha's story and Evelyn's story apparently coincided. They they lined up with each other. A lot of people never believed any of this that happened anyway. Test shows that at the time of Sam's death, he had a blood alcohol level of 0. 0.16. 0. 0.08 is considered too drunk to drive. So unfortunately, all those martinis that Sam ends up drinking, you know, it impairs his judgment. That just goes to show that he was, you know, slightly intoxicated. Sam's credit cards were also missing. The only other money that Sam had was about $108 in a money clip in his Ferrari and the ashtray. That was all the money that was found. And apparently, Lisa only had $20 on her person at the time that police showed up. So, yet again, where is that $5,000 that Sam had on his person that he was showing around to everybody? Where was that money? Where was that money? I don't know. That $5,000 was never recovered. So, after a bit of deliberation from the jury... Bertha and Evelyn, they pass polygraph tests. Of course, polygraph tests, they're known nowadays to not be concrete proof of innocence. But back then, people saw polygraph tests as like a massive deal. You can, of course, fake a polygraph test pretty easily. Uh, But, you know, the two of them passed. And the jury came back with a verdict of justifiable homicide, which implies that Bertha had every single right that night to kill Sam in a justifiable way. Like, Sam's death was considered justified. For her to murder him, that was justified because, according to Bertha, he came at her and he attacked her, if you will, if you even want to believe that. That's the case closed there. The case is closed. That's it. Police were done. The whole inquest was done. That was it. But people didn't want to believe any of that. Sam ends up having two funerals. The first one was on December 18, 1964 in Chicago. 200,000 fans had lined up for more than four city blocks to view his body. And that's the thing. They had an open casket funeral and people literally lined up to see his body. Like that was the only time some people could have ever seen Sam Cooke in person if they couldn't have made it to a concert, which is crazy to think. We will get into the fact of the open casket funeral in just a minute because that's very important to the story. Um, But he has that one funeral. And then the second funeral happens the next day and his body was flown to L.A. And his friend Ray Charles performed at that funeral, which I thought was very moving. That's the story. And then, of course, the change is going to come was released not long after officially. And that becomes the anthem for the civil rights movement. And then following days, weeks, some riots in LA happen. People coincide the two events having a correlation, you know, like one caused the other. I think that could definitely make sense for sure because people were outraged. His family and friends particularly were not believing the story at all that Sam could, you know, force his way on this woman that he just met and then go and be violent towards this Bertha Franklin to the point where he ends up attacking her and slapping her and twisting her arms. It's crazy. This whole story is so crazy to me. What's interesting about Bertha Franklin as a as a person, she was an ex-madam, which means she was in the prostitution industry. And she had her own lengthy criminal record. So she wasn't this clean-cut, nice, well-to-do motel manager at all. She had a very, very, very shady past as well. After this whole thing, she was forced to quit her job after receiving several death threats. But get this, she filed a $200,000 lawsuit against Sam Cook's estate for punitive damages and injuries, but she lost. The court was like, what injuries? (laughs) What injuries and what damages? Like, that doesn't make any sense. So she lost. So the fact that she then tried to turn it around and tried to get money from Sam Cook's estate, that really, that blows. That says a lot to me about the kind of person that she is. Like, that's crazy to me. That's just one little piece of the conspiracy that people are throwing around here. But now let's jump into more of the facts and also a lot of the conspiracy information. 
So I suppose I can start off with, again, the fact that his friends and family, people that knew Sam best, better than anyone else, they have said they never once believed the official story that was said by Bertha and Lisa. They never believed it. They believed there was some kind of conspiracy, whether you want to believe it was a small conspiracy It was a conspiracy that involved the mob or as high as the FBI. In some fashion, they believed there was a grander conspiracy to kill Sam. Due in part to everything I had already laid out to you about Sam and the person that he was, right? How vocal he was about being a black man in society and his politics and who he associated with. And he was a very powerful man that was was creating a record company for himself, providing a space for other Black artists to rise to the occasion. People were getting scared. And J. Edgar Hoover at the time, who was the head of the FBI, was known to be a paranoid man to the point where it was proven that he was tapping the phones of people like Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X. And who was friends with them? Sam Cooke. So Sam's name was kind of thrown in all this with the FBI. Now, whether or not the FBI was looking at Sam Cooke directly, it could be. But I would probably say, yeah, Sam was a massive player in all of this. Muhammad Ali actually famously said this, quote, If Cook had been Frank Sinatra, the Beatles, or Ricky Nelson, the FBI would be investigating, end quote. And yeah, that's extremely true, 1000%. Yeah, basically, if Sam Cook was a white guy that was murdered, the FBI would be investigating this to a millionth degree. And Sam Cook's case was not at all internally looked at in any facet by the LAPD, who is a known corrupt police force. The LAPD is known to be corrupt. That is literally as much of a fact as saying that the sky is blue. It's just a fact. The LAPD is known to be very corrupt and very racist. I'll just say that as well, because it's true, especially back in the day. So people were wondering, how did Sam Cooke actually get in that position? How did he actually die? Because let's take a look at the fact that he had an open casket funeral. It's a very interesting choice. I don't know who did that. I don't, I'm not sure if his wife said, let's do it. I'm not sure. But I think that was a very poignant decision to make because that in part means you want people to see the truth of the situation, right? So one of Sam's friends, singer Etta James, She is massively, massively popular, and she's also an interesting person as well. She attends Sam's funeral, and upon viewing Sam's body, she observed injuries that were well beyond the scope of what the official coroner's report had said, which claimed that Sam fought off Bertha by himself that night, basically, which means all the injuries that he got was due to the fight he had with Bertha. Now, Bertha, she was a small woman. She, she was smaller than him physically in stature. The fact that she was a smaller woman than him physically, I think he could probably overtake her. So I find it interesting that she shot him three times. But the fact that he apparently, according to her, charged at her after he got shot the first time, she instead used a broomstick instead of continuing to shoot, which I think is fascinating. We'll get into that in a minute. Etta James noted in her journal, she wrote this down in her journal, she noticed that Sam was so badly beaten that his head was, quote, practically disconnected from his shoulders. That's how badly he'd been beaten. His hands were broken and crushed. They tried to cover it up with makeup, but I could see massive bruises on his head. No woman with a broomstick could have inflicted that kind of beating against a strong, full-grown man, end quote. So essentially, Sam's visible injuries were more extensive than what the coroner's report had noted, which I believe the only things the coroner report ever said was, yes, he did get shot through the chest, the lungs, the heart, and he had a bump on his head. That's about it. Etta James said his head was practically disconnected from his body. His hands were broken and crushed. His nose was all messed up, too. There were bruises everywhere. They tried to cover it up with makeup. Didn't work. That's extremely significant. Like, 
you have to really, really, really viscerally hate somebody to inflict that kind of harm onto that person. And you have to be very strong to overcome that person and do it. Unfortunately, Sam was a bit intoxicated that night. You know, maybe he was slightly disoriented. So I think whoever attacked him that night had the upper hand regardless, unfortunately, to favor in line with this conspiracy that there could have been other people there that night. Let's just say, for example, maybe two or three other like grown men that were there doing this. Forensic pathologist Dr. Cyril H. Wecht argued that Sam's death was not justifiable homicide because Cook was wearing a sport coat and nothing else. He had no weapon and Bertha was not in fear of her life. Yeah, 1000%. I also agree with that too. It's not justifiable because Sam doesn't have a weapon on him. He's naked except for wearing a sport coat and one shoe. Getting back to the fact that he was shot with the pistol, right? She had a 22 gauge pistol, but the gun that was registered to Bertha was actually a 32 caliber pistol. And I hope I'm using these words correctly. It was a .32 pistol that she was registered with. He was shot with a .22 pistol. The bullet that went through Sam's body was taken into police evidence and then quickly went missing serendipitously. Like, oops, the bullet, literally. The bullet that killed Sam Cook was taken into LAPD evidence and then it went missing. What are the odds of that happening? <laughs> Very likely and... You know, it's just very, 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 very interesting. The gun, though, that she had contained numerous bullets in it. Why would she only shoot him three times? But then apparently when he got back up to charge at her, after he'd been shot through both lungs and his heart, that he would charge her and then she'd use the broomstick handle. I think if you were shot through the lungs and the heart, you don't get up. <laughs> you just don't get up like you're on the ground. I believe, sure, that maybe he could have had some energy in his body to say, lady, you shot me, but I don't think you then charge up as if you're like <laughs> this inhuman type of like strong person in charge. That just makes no sense to me. That sounds like a fictitious story versus like an actual realistic transpiring of events. It just doesn't make sense to me. Bertha appeared to have no marks or injuries on her person when she testified before cameras at this inquest five days after the murder took place. So that's also very poignant as well. Guests at the motel also told police that they didn't hear gunshots or sound of an altercation. Now, you could say that they're so used to hearing gun violence that they didn't register this as anything unique or they literally didn't hear anything. I would more so believe genuinely that they heard gunshots, but they just didn't register it because Sam was shot. It just went in one ear and out the other with the other motel guests. Like they, it just was so normal to them, you know, that they become accustomed to hearing gunshots. That is kind of one aspect of this whole thing. People also want to think that Alan Klein had something to do with it. Now, I'm not sure. If, if Alan Klein was involved with the mob of any sort, I'm not familiar with that and I'm not sure. But Alan Klein was definitely a very seedy character. He literally made himself the owner of Tracy Limited, had control over Sam's entire catalog of publishing rights to his music, and Sam had nothing. So, you know, eventually the gig would be up one of these days and Sam, before his death, was going to go to Alan Klein and fire him. Was Alan Klein privy to possibly Sam Cooke fighting back and saying, you're fired or not? That could be one theory, but that's just one possible theory. There's no concrete evidence to obviously support this theory that Alan Klein was involved, but Alan Klein is an asshole and that is very concrete and we can prove that because there is evidence for that. So, but whether or not he killed Sam Cooke or had any involvement. We are not sure about that, but that's just one aspect. The other aspect of this whole conspiracy, was this all just a robbery possibly gone wrong of some kind? So the woman that he met that night, Lisa, she was with friends that Sam was familiar with. And she took a lot of Sam's clothes that had money in it. Again, his wallet with his credit cards and some extra cash in there. And the $5,000 in cold, hard cash, which again, where is that money? 
where did it go? Lisa, a month after Sam's death, was arrested for prostitution. She wasn't like this random person that didn't really know anything about anybody. You know, she most likely had a pimp that put her at certain spots, right? And she was familiar with the area. She's familiar with the seedy motels to go to. And she knew all these people. She had these connections, right? That's just how literally it works. Did Sam Cook know that she was a prostitute? Which, again, could lead me to believe that regardless of the fact, Sam Cook could have asked for her services. She could have said, yeah, let's go to this motel. I know about this motel. It's a $3 motel. You don't got to pay nothing. Like, let's go there. It's very secretive. They go to this motel. They have a mutual understanding. And then she robs him. That's essentially what people have ascertained could have been the genuine situation. Literally, he had $5,000 on his pocket. Sam showed this to everyone. She was in a booth right next to Sam seeing this go down. Everyone was aware of who Sam Cook was. They knew he was very famous and had a lot of money. So this was the opportune moment, you know? People also suspect that she grabbed his clothes and that someone that she was associated with, like her pimp or someone was there lying and waiting, and she tossed the money or his clothes to this person. And then she ran to the police and made up this kidnapping story, right? Like, oh, I don't know where I am. I'm not sure. Like, that's what she says on the 911 call. She has no idea where she is. I don't know. I was kidnapped. What is also extremely fascinating, in 1979, she was found guilty of second-degree murder of her ex-boyfriend. Now, that proves to me that she is crazy. Something is not right there. That proves to me that there is something that's not right with this girl. If she killed her ex-boyfriend, literally, for whatever reason, that's quite interesting. It just goes to show that she is a seedy character, that she's not an innocent player in this situation. People believe, yet again, that she... Uh, robbed him during this whole thing and she made this whole story up. People also believe that Bertha and Lisa knew each other because Bertha was an ex-prostitute. She was the manager of this motel. Lisa probably knew this motel, all of that stuff. Of course, she could lie to the police and say, I don't know where I am. The whole point of it is a lot of Sam's clothes weren't ever found and the $5,000 that he was carrying that night was never recovered. It's a very probable theory or a concrete one that she did attempt to rob him and then uh, he got whacked. Let's just say that he got whacked. Now, by who? Not sure. That could be someone in the FBI. It could be the mob, you know, that could also make sense too. Um, it could be someone that was associated with Lisa, like her pimps or whomever, right? There's a lot of possible factors and because it's never been solved like that, we don't know and we probably never will know because these kinds of people are protected by corrupt police forces, right? The LAPD is corrupt. So whoever was genuinely responsible for this, I mean, Bertha was the fall guy. I'll just say that Bertha was clearly, I think, the fall person in this whole situation. Allegedly. <laughs> Allegedly. But I'm just speaking frankly about this whole thing because it's crazy um, that she was the fall person in all of this and whoever genuinely killed Sam and beat him up and killed him, probably will never will never get justice for that because they're, they're protected by the police. Now, a lot of people also think yet again that he was killed due to his involvement in the civil rights movement, which makes a lot of sense to me. You know, I mean, the fact of the matter, Malcolm X was murdered. Martin Luther King Jr. was murdered. Sam Cooke was murdered. I, this was the time in American history for a lot of black people to die violently at the hands of paranoid white supremacists. Let's just be real about it. You know, paranoid white people that were terrified of the uprising of black people. And that's just so fucked up. It's fucked up because Sam is like any normal human being and he wanted his rights like anybody else. And the fact that he was so vocal about his own rights and the rights of his own people were very scary to big wigs in the music industry and the LAPD, all of that, you know? So there's a lot at play here, and it doesn't surprise me in the slightest that I truly believe 
he could have been killed due to his involvement in politics, due to his association with Muhammad Ali and with Malcolm X. That's pretty significant because literally Malcolm X was being tapped by the FBI as well as Muhammad Ali, and they were great close friends with Sam Cooke. So I think Sam Cooke just got thrown into the mix and because he was creating his own record company, he was owning his own publishing rights to his music. He was giving a safe space for other black artists to rise to the occasion and be prominent as well and have massive hits. You know, people like RCA and all these other white labels were scared that Sam was taking away their business, right? And what do scared white people of this time in the 50s and 60s do? I think we all understand what could have happened here. So it's no surprise to me that Sam, I think, was definitely or probably killed due to that. I would I would say that, yeah, that is a factor for sure. What I thought is interesting to note, though, is this man, Norman, I cannot say his last name, Edelin, Norman Edelin. I'm so sorry if I flubbed on that. He was one of the few men of color to serve the precinct for the LAPD in 1964. And he says, quote, the LAPD didn't give a damn about Sam Cooke. They could not have been less interested in pursuing a full, thorough investigation. LAPD under Chief William H. Parker had a heavy-handed attitude about minorities, period. It didn't have to start with what particular code you violated. It started with what you looked like. That's all there is to it. When you consider the FBI's attitude about minorities and civil rights at the time, they definitely could have been an influence, end quote. Unfortunately, Sam had a target on his back for many years um, because he was a vocal black person who was just speaking about his normal rights as a human being. And unfortunately, this talented, wonderful, amazing singer gets gunned down. And unfortunately, this whole crazy thing about his death shrouds his entire career. People don't remember the songs that he did. They remember the fact that he died in this monstrosity of a way. For example, people more so remember the fact that Martin Luther King Jr. died in a very tragic way instead of like the things that he spoke about and the things that he fought for and all of that. And it's just so wild to me that even his death, Sam Cooke's death, is the thing that people talk about the most, which is why I wanted to bring up more of his true character and who he was as a person, because that's what is the most important thing. Yes, of course, it's fascinating and it's crazy the way in which he, he died. Yes, of course it is. And that's so tragic. But I think we need to bring it back around into who Sam Cooke was and we need to celebrate him because Sam was an amazing, talented singer. If you have not heard of Sam Cooke's music, you need to do yourself a favor right now and listen to him. Listen to a couple of his songs. Listen to an album. It's fantastic. Unbelievable. He's one of my favorite singers because he's so talented. He really, really is a rare voice that we don't have anymore. He was known as the king of soul. Like he truly, truly was. He had amazing soul. So give him a listen for sure. But to kind of summarize, I suppose, to wrap up this episode, you could boil it down to what really happened here, right? There's so many conspiracy theories. Um, there's a lot of mystery surrounding his death. But what, in essence, can you boil it down to? What really happened? I would say, first of all, Sam Cooke was known for his infidelity. He obviously had a wife, Barbara, like I mentioned, with children at home. And it was known that after the death of his young child that died in the family pool, that his marriage even took a further dive and he was not his usual self, right? So, you know, Sam Cooke was entertaining the likes of, you know, women around him, right? He was entertaining that. And Barbara knew that. And I think a lot of his friends knew that too. It was something that they didn't really like speak vocally about, but it was something that you know. So my personal opinion, and I think what makes the most sense to me, Sam, this night on the 10th, he had dinner with his friends. He was happy about the success of the Live of the Copa album and all the live shows that he had done previously. He was happy uh, showing everyone proudly the money he had just made, which is not a smart move, but he was drinking, he was intoxicated, he was happy, he was having a great time, he dressed very nicely, he had a nice Ferrari, 
you know, he was really happy about some of these material things that he could acquire now that he was becoming a lot more big and mainstream, even more so. Lisa Boyer is in the foyer of all of this. She sees this going down. She could have been a plant for her pimps or whomever told her to be there, right, to acquire Sam in some kind of fashion, right? She's with one of Sam's friends. Sam recognizes one of the men that she's with. So that, to me, I think also has a lot of credence to that theory being right. Whether his friend set him up purposefully, I'm not sure. But that's very interesting, that tidbit anyway. But Sam and Lisa, they have this connection. You know, they go to a club to meet up with their friend. Their friend isn't there. Sam is infatuated with this Lisa Boyer. He inquires about her services. Maybe he knows that she's a prostitute. Maybe he doesn't know. But regardless, they have a mutual understanding. They go to this hotel. Whether he knew this hotel or not, it looks to me that I don't think he knew. It was a known hangout for prostitutes as well. So, of course, she would know this, right? So they go to this Hacienda Hotel and they get to their hotel room, you know, They have consensual sex and he goes to use the bathroom. And when he goes to use the bathroom, she makes her attempt to flee. She grabs all of his clothes and her clothes. She throws the money and all of his credit cards and things and whatever out the door to whomever is there behind the hotel. And she runs to the phone booth and she makes a fake phone call to the police that she was kidnapped and she has no idea where she is. Sam Cooke comes out of the bathroom disoriented drunk and confused as to where this woman had gone with his money and his clothes. You would be very upset as well if your $5,000 in cash was stolen by someone you had just met that night as well that you had a bit of a thing for. You would also be upset. So Sam throws on whatever he can to conceal himself and goes to the manager's office. He knocks on the door. Hey, did you see the girl that I was with? Where is she? Did you see her? Bertha's like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, whatever. What happens in between that whole encounter to where Sam ends up dying, that's also a massive question. Could Bertha had been in on this? You know, that could also be a question mark. But regardless, I believe Sam was beaten and severely killed in this whole thing. He was shot and killed, not by her, but I think by someone else or other perpetrators, and that Bertha was the fall person. And of course, Evelyn Carr, who's the owner of the hotel, was on the phone with Bertha. So it's almost like she had an alibi, if you will, or like a cohort to say, yeah, that happened because I heard it on the phone type of situation. It's funny that those three people are the only ones, aside from Sam Cooke, that heard all this happening and no one else did, right? But that to me is what happened. And then, of course, the police didn't look further into this. And so that's what I kind of believe happened, that this is not justifiable homicide, that Sam was unjustifiably murdered. Unfortunately for poor Sam, that is the fate that befell him at the end of 1964. He didn't even make it to Christmas with his family. That's essentially the death of Sam Cooke and what ended up happening there. But again, I want to bring it back around to a more positive note because I think we all need to give Sam Cook a lot more um, of a platform now because Sam's music is more poignant than ever. And we need to remember him as a fantastic, amazing, talented musician instead of the fact that he died in this tragic way. Because yes, his death is very much so what people think about and talk about when they hear Sam Cooke. Like, oh, the fact that he died this kind of way. It's, yes, of course. I, of course, wanted to talk about this story because it is fascinating and give this story more of a platform to speak out on it because it is an injustice. But also, I wanted to make sure that we all knew that Sam Cooke's name is not to be forgotten. He's been gone for many years, but his music will still live on. The fact that a change is going to come, the song that helped to even more so solidify the civil rights movement. Um, He was one of the first black artists to write a massive song like that. You know, he rivaled Bob Dylan in that aspect. And so he wasn't afraid. Sam Cooke was not afraid. And I think that's a great way to live. He was not afraid at all of speaking his mind and being vocal and open about certain things that meant a lot to him. So if you take anything away from this episode, I hope that it's 
you know, Sam Cooke's bravery in the face of adversity, but also Sam Cooke was a pioneer in a lot of aspects. He was the king of soul, but also Sam Cooke's music as a whole. Go and listen to Sam Cooke's music, please, if you have not had the opportunity to listen. He is an amazing singer, a fantastic performer. He's incredible. But that, in a nutshell, is essentially the story of Sam Cooke, who he was, and the death and the fate that befell him. I hope that you guys enjoyed and you learned something today that you hadn't known about before. I will see you guys next Wednesday with another episode of On The Mix. I'll talk to you guys later. Bye, guys.